it's almost like you're batting away demons. You know, and I don't totally hate demons, so I'm just saying, you know, the monster kind. They're your favorite thing. Is yeah, what I heard. like the monsters. But you are, but there are less, there are very bad things in the world, spiritual entities, I think, that uh, suggest to you that you are filthy, uh, decrepit, incapable human, and you have no capacity to create anything of value. And they will usually talk in the voices of your parents. Because, unfortunately, we live in a world where people dissuade people from their dreams with the best intentions. You know, you can't possibly make a living at that. Give that up. That's going to lead you astray. You're going to be a homeless person in the park singing to the pigeons if you keep this up. You know, that kind of thing. And you have that in your head when you're working on something for five years. Believe me, you have to play badminton with that, with that creature in your head every day. Get them satisfied or sedated or whatever it is you have to do to them and then work. And the secret, I think, is just to work, no matter what. If something bad happens, you work. You just make it a, a, it's a pact with yourself. You don't ever let yourself off of that. You work, no matter what. Do you have a friend or relative or loved one who serves as sort of an editor or a sounding board for you? Not really. I didn't through the creation of the two books. Yeah. Um, I had my daughter who was, um, at that point in my life, she was under 21, now she's 21, and she was a marvelous support, although she had never really read the book, but she would be encouraging, you know, and her blind faith in me was the same blind faith when I had to relearn how to walk, and there was no certitude that that could happen. I was told that I couldn't walk again, and she said, oh, sure, you can. I, I really believe you can, and I just looked in her little beautiful face and thought, I'm going to decide to believe you and not all these doctors. And it was the best decision I ever made because, like, I'm not walking, I'm not running a marathon or anything, but I'm able to get up and walk, which was something I literally couldn't do at all for nine months. So her faith in me was a big part. And I had another friend who I've had since I was eight years old. Her name is Crystal Powell. She is just a little badass of a person. She just always believed in me. And now I have another friend, Kurt Devine, who... Uh, has been really supportive, and if anything, he has been, you know, very encouraging about the finishing of the second book. Does overcoming that kind of adversity of, of dealing with, like, real problems, does that put something like finishing a book into perspective? Sure, I think so. And I think, you know, we have imaginations, you know, and as artists, and I think anybody who's going to be listening to this is somebody who has a desire to accomplish something in their lives, whether it's artistic or, you know, whatever it is. I think uh, we can imagine things. We can imagine how difficult life could be. We can hear about what other people in other places have to contend with just to provide for their families. And so we're really fortunate to a great degree here. Even though there is poverty here and even though there's there are all kinds of challenges, there's still enough stability in this country at this point for us to carve out an hour, at least a lot of us, or two hours a day where we can make our mark on paper or write our words or sing our songs or record what we have to record or make our dances up or whatever it is that we love, you know. There's still, and I, I really encourage working people. That's the greatest slavery that's going on right now, is that working people are very much enslaved in a debt system, especially students, and it's criminal. It's an absolute crime against the country. And I'm just going to say to the banks right now, you're committing a crime against 
your own people. Because you can't enslave people in this way and expect them to be whole humans. They're struggling with too much. But I would still say to those people, as hard as it is, having graduated with the debt that you've graduated with, you got that education for a reason. Spend a few hours a day. That means get rid of your television. It's your enemy. TV is your enemy. I don't have one. And I would say I couldn't have finished these books if I had had one. So get rid of it and spend two hours a day working on your work. Even if you've got an hour, make that hour count. And then spend the rest of the day when you have downtime. In a, if you're in retail, think about your project, whatever that is. You know, give it your soul, your secret. You give it your special energy, your unique self. And don't give that to your jobs. You must have felt like you were chipping away at a mountain, though. Sure, absolutely. And I think there's a certain amount of insanity in that. You know, I mean, I really do think there is a certain amount of lunacy. And I encourage, uh, I think there are positive forms of obsessive compulsive disorder. One of them, of course, is when the society sanctions the output or the product of your OCD as being something valuable. It's a really strangely um, arbitrary kind of a decision in a way. But I would say to people who struggle with that, I'm not by any means mocking the the deep struggle. I have it myself. Yeah. But I am saying um, use who you are. Use who you are. And instead of uh, furthering an addiction to mass culture, pop culture, w which are all wonderful things, really focus on your gift. It, it's needed by the world. We're at a time when the world needs us more than it has ever needed us before. Because we know that our planet is sick. And that the energy that it's going to require to heal us is going to be the energy of creative, brilliant people who are thinking outside of any boxes. They're thinking in rivers. They're thinking in forests. They're thinking at the tops of mountains. Their, their energy, and I really believe this, is going to change things. It's going to change us. We don't yet know how true that's going to be. There are clear cases where art is a direct reaction to something that's happening in the world. You know, obviously, political cartoons are a clear example, uh, a lot of music. Do you feel, though, that you are channeling that in a sense that you're sort of channeling some of the greater woes of the world into your work and that they've made their way into these books? Right. Well, I think that's a great question, Brian. Um, one of the things that surprised me is that when I was working on, on the book, I, I, we weren't seeing the rise of neo-Nazism in the, in the way that we are now. We've always, this is a racist country, let's just be honest. This is a country that's founded on genocide. It's a country that's founded on slavery. It's a country that's actually devoted to inequity, despite whatever it touts. But at our core, I think we're also a people who have an ideal. I was raised during the 70s mostly, and the ideal we had was that human beings really could change things, and it's become a less popular idea. We're more cynical about that. I think that's a mistake. I think we have to uh, stay in the possibilities. So when I wrote this book, these things came to me as important, and I saw that there was a certain direction that things were going, but I, I believed it would I actually worried, this is funny, I worried during the creation of the book that I was writing something that was unnecessary and that there would be no, I, mean, I was really hopeful. I mean, remember, our president was an African-American man, and despite whatever political things the United States continues to do, mainly war that never seems to end, I sensed that he was a person who 
was genuine in his desire to see us move in a better direction. People were asking the first time he was elected whether this was the end of racism in the United States. That, that was a, a thing That's that mainstream right. media yeah. was actually asking people. That's a really interesting thing that you said. I, I would love to hear that quote compared to some of the things that are being said right now. I was watching something in the hotel room today about uh, the rise of Nazism, and one of the things was that a commentator was saying, you know, at first you saw saw the brown shirts marching with a swastika, and they were just sort of this little entity marching along. And then pretty soon you saw regular citizens behind them. And and all of a sudden one day there were just lots and lots of regular citizens behind them with this flag that they had been given with a swastika on it. So you begin to see how something becomes a mass movement. And are we there? Are we in that place where we're going to decide what we are? Uh, I don't know. I hope that's not the decision we make. How can a book like this, though, something you know that you've been working on for five years that, that predated the rise of Donald Trump, are there any sort of tangible things that you can point to insofar as, yeah, I think that this maybe will change the way somebody feels about something, or, or this is out in the world right now, so maybe there's some opportunity for it to affect change. Um, you know, I can't exactly point to, I'm trying to think if there's been somebody who's come to me and said anything specifically. I haven't had anybody, but I doubt that I would. I doubt yeah. that a person who would come to see me would admit to having uh, neo-Nazi leanings. Sure. I mean, I really don't think they would. I'm not I'm not disparaging the question. I think it's an excellent question, and I wish I had um, something tangibly wonderful to tell you about. What I will say is that um, I think that when you put something out into the world, it accretes a certain energy, and that energy grows on its own. Yeah. It, it's, it's almost, you know, they use the term meme, but there is this way that there's almost a kind of a... A mental energy that is greater than the sum of its parts, you know. And I think that, uh, you know, if you have enough of that, especially among young people, then you start raising questions, even in very isolated places. So the book is making its way into extremely isolated places. That's something I find interesting. Yeah. It just recently sold to Russia. Uh, that's an interesting thing. That's a very interesting um, thing. Yes, it is. And and I think, um, you know, because it does deal with certain issues of parody regarding, you know, gender identity, that's a very strange place for it to have sold into. I don't really know what to think about that. I, I wish well for Karen as she ventures, you know, into that world. And I just pray that she has the power to remain strong and is not tampered with in any way. Um, but I have a great deal of respect for anybody who would engage to do that. I think these are champions in our world, and we are creating champions. This adversity is creating people who will stand up and speak truth to power. And what is a life worth? You know, I, I believe in reincarnation. I think those people are coming back as, as bigger, better, be- more beautiful things. If this life steals their souls, it doesn't. It just steals their bodies. Their souls come back in a bigger way. That's part of the second book, actually, crazily enough. There's something interesting that happens with allegory, with science fiction, in your case, horror movies. This is just fresh in my mind. It's not the best example of this. Although we were talking about Corey Doctorow before. He's very good with this, but I was reading um, Brooke Gladstone. She's an NPR host. She put out a little book about basically the relativity of reality right now and like fake news. But she kept coming back to science fiction. And I think that that is really applicable to your book because you're dealing with a question of sexuality with the main character. And it's filtered through these horror movies which 
It's so strange that us as humans can relate more to this story maybe of a wolf man than a little girl realizing that she might be gay. Right. I, I, my experience with that is very much what the book's experience was. I, I was watching Daughter of Dracula with my girlfriend at the time, and I, but I saw this moment when there's almost a kiss and you can tell that there's this strong yeah. sexual attraction between two women and it's more than sex it's it's something well of course at that time i'm thinking they really love each other and they can love each other and the bride of dracula they can go and they can get married and i'm thinking this is what i want and and there's no representation of this in the culture at all there are no there's not even the word lesbian it's not a word i've even really heard anybody say what happens, I think, is that this liminality, the liminality of, of horror and monster movies, allows for a lot of things to be expressed that the culture can't actually express. An example of which, I believe, that the first movie referencing Nazis made in Sweden was a horror movie. Was it Dead Snow? So they're uh, approaching this history, and they're doing it through horror. And I think that's uh, horror does that for us. It gives us this liminal space this marginality where we can discuss really important things, but we don't have to say that they're important. We don't even have to say that they're real. And that's a, there's a breath. You can take a breath in that space. You can be afraid, yeah. but titillated. Because, you know, there's always that, that frisson of, of titillation that goes along with the horror. So there's a sexual dimension to it as well. Even now, where we've certainly made a lot more progress, it's much more acceptable to be out than it was before. But, but even now, it, there's some thread in there that I think for people who don't understand what it's like going through, for some reason it's easier for them and they can relate to the struggle of a wolf man. They can relate to, you know, somebody, this fantasy of somebody changing when the moon is out versus you know, right. somebody coming to grips with their sexuality. There's just something really powerful about that allegory. I would say that's so, but I would also say, and this was something that, you know, when you write something, you think you're kind of smart, and then people who are smarter than you <laughs> actually look at it and go, well, you know, you're talking about this, and, yeah. and you think, I have two choices now. I can pretend that I knew that, or I can have my stupid mouth just sort of hanging open dumbly and go, oh, you know, you're right. And yeah. I tend to go with, oh, you know, you're right, because I don't play it off too well. So I had somebody come to me and say, well, you know, there's this whole, the cycles of the moon and being female. Yeah. And, you know, she doesn't want to be female, and yet she's allowing the moon to do this to her. And it's, it's a definite uh, perk over actually becoming a woman, which is much more terrifying. And as of late, we're kind of seeing how terrifying yeah. it is in all these sectors, especially entertainment right now. I, I think that's only one revelation, and the only reason we're seeing that is because we're celebrity uh culture. We love, enjoy celebrity. But we'll see that in every other aspect of our culture. We'll see how women have been dissuaded from realizing themselves. I mean, I was, you know, I, I wanted, I went to Bally Pinball Company and I, I showed a portfolio and the guy loved it. He said, you know, we'd love to hire you. You're, you're really good. And all I wanted to do, my whole dream was to make pinball. Um, the back I love glasses. I love, and, yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a completely I love yeah, pinball. Absolutely. And uh, I was told, unfortunately, the boys, the boys like to talk like boys. And you'd be a girl. You'd be the only one. And so we can't have you. So nice portfolio. Take care. Locker room. That's talk. what he said. And I was gone. So I didn't get the job. And how many times has that happened to women? It happened to me many more times than that. But I guess what I'm saying is that. We'll start to see that Karen under, is not unfounded in her fear and rejection of being a woman. It's a, it's a, it's a more challenging thing than being a monster. 
when you first embarked on this giant two-volume book, what was that first thread? When did it really start coming together as something that you really wanted to spend that much time working on? I wrote a short story that I was surprised at how delighted people were when I performed Karen and, uh, you know, just performed her in the whole persona of a little Catholic schoolgirl telling this story that essentially was written to the nun who likes her and realized that it would be on a notebook and that, you know, I could build on this but when I did it in front of an audience with her facial features and I took them on people were kind of like I found a sense of sympathy that with the audience when I read it that was one of the first signs that people would be open-hearted and they would want to embrace her. You're talking about it as performance, and you actually connected with a live audience, but in a lot of ways, making comics is kind of the opposite of performance, right? It's oh, yeah. an incredibly solitary thing, especially when you're working on it for Well, I always thought of a sow bug. You know, a sow bug rolls over, and you can see their little weedly, weedly, uh, yeah. but they become a, you know, so there's this way they're, they're vulnerable once they're on their backs. That's why they're struggling with all those little legs. You have this shell as a cartoonist. You're sort of the sow bug, but not on its yeah. back maybe well i don't know yeah it's not a glorious position to be in to be working 12 hours a day you know or 16 hours a day on some drawings that get you 10 seconds of somebody's reading time you know for two weeks or whatever uh it's really labor intensive and it makes you vulnerable because you know financially it's a crazy thing to do and you're squishable you know you're always squishable we're all squishable truthfully but you know i'll tell you the thing that's so great about it and it's it's just it's it's that you can retreat and you can really be deeply in your own head it's a gift that you're giving because this is meant to be read it's meant to be an intimacy that i share with somebody out of love. Every change in the drawing to make it more understandable that Dee's is angry, that Karen is scared, that Mama is whatever. You know, every change, I make it as a gift. It's so that the reader gets more. And I don't think there's anything more wonderful than that. You know what I mean? Even though you're a long way from the giving. It's like you're wrapping this very ornate package for somebody and you want it to be splendid. And it's five years away from giving it to them. But you're still doing it. And, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? But it's also love. Did you feel like you were channeling it? I mean, you, it certainly seems like you got, you really, you, you hooked into it, especially because, I mean, it started off as, the two books started off as one, right? You kind of, right. you produced most of this in yeah. one go. You could have attempted to serialize it or done some floppies or put put it online, something like that. What What made you so locked in? What made you want to do it front to back. I, you know, I think there was a, a need, a necessity to tell this story, to get to a point where I knew I needed to be. You know, there was Anka's story. For the first part of the book, Anka's story was just sort of pressing me. I knew I needed to say these things. Part of it is I have a innate sympathy for sex workers. I think that we have uh, one of the great crimes of our society is against sex workers. These are people who do something for us as a society that is remarkable. And we treat a job, which is that is the job, we treat these people as though they are not people. Criminals. And I cannot even, I just, I don't understand it. Like, why would we be doing that unless that says something about who we are as a society, what we're afraid of, what we're anxious about, and how much we reject ourselves. So I knew that was going to be a part of the Anka story, and I knew I had to get to that. And once I got there, I was sort of rolling down a hill. I just couldn't. It could. It, it picked up a momentum, and then I couldn't stop. Yeah. I had to get to the end, 
and I pretty much got to the end. And you just haven't seen it yet, but if you ever see, I'm just saying this to people out in the world. If yeah. you if somebody tells you they have the second book and they you know you can download it and take a look at it, just be aware it is not the second book. It's what was the second book three years ago. It's vastly different now. I mean, so much so that I don't think. You would spoil the second book for yourself if you went and got it. In an interesting way, it seems like illness and disability has really kind of impacted your work pretty much since the beginning. I mean, you you had scoliosis as a child. I did. And that <laughs> basically, that's kind of what turned you into an artist in a way. And a monster. And a yeah, monster. it was. Well, I was a born and bred monster. Yeah. But I, what happened was that I was lonely. And my wonderful friends like Crystal Powell and Marilyn Hardy, they were nice kids. And Christina Tash, and she was adorable. But they would run off and play, and I wanted them back. So I started telling uh, ghost and monsters-type stories by the gate of the school, and I got a little cadre of kids who would come back. I would leave them with a cliffhanger, and they'd come back. So at each recess, I wasn't, you know, because I couldn't run, I wasn't alone. I just had to spin this story and here's the interesting thing, Brian. Most of my classmates at one point in the school's history were black. And I looked at the stories I was telling them, and the horror was real. Mm. You know, they were approaching a life and a world where, even then, we all knew that the, the Chicago police could summarily execute you for absolutely no reason whatsoever. We knew that. We grew up knowing that. And if you were a black kid, you had to know that. Yeah. And know that that could be your mommy or your daddy who was treated like that. There's nothing more horrible in this country than the fact that a child has to grow up and think that that could happen in their family. So my horror stories began to reflect these entities that had this power and then heroes who could deal with these entities by virtue of unique, innate powers they had as individuals. And I think that's what that's one of the things monster stories empower us to do. The monster doesn't choose to be a monster. So how does the monster deal with being in a society full of these very boring villagers yeah. who are always trying to do him or her harm? And as a person myself, having experienced some of these issues of prejudice on a much lower level, of course, than anybody who is African-American ever would. But I had a sensitivity to it. And um, I began to realize that horror was a metaphor all the time. I don't want to read too much into it. And obviously, when anytime a, a work of art, anytime a book comes out or an album comes out, everyone wants to know the story behind it, you know, get, get a little bit of context. But I have to assume that you're essentially having to teach yourself how to walk again, how to steady your hands must have been a huge motivating factor in wanting to finally really sit down and create a truly substantial work. Well, I had a great physical therapist, a South African woman named Naomi Pollock, who was wonderfully helpful. So I didn't have to do it all myself. But the part I had to do was standing up when I knew I would fall. And that's, I would say, a great metaphor for being a cartoonist, too. Yeah. You know, know that you're going to fall. Know that you're going to fail. I have failed many, many times throughout the process of bringing this book to market. When my agent and I brought it to mar market initially, 48 of the 50 people that my agent and I proposed the book to turned it down. Let that sink in. 48 publishers out of the 50 who we proposed it to turned it down. So when you're out there in the world, and believe me, it wasn't the first two that accepted it. It was the last two yeah. that we proposed it to. It would have been more than 50. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you kept going. Right. Don't give up. Yeah. And no matter who's told you, you 
are not able to do a thing. I had the head of neurology at a very prestigious hospital tell me that I would never walk again, that if I was eight years old and this injury had happened to me, there was almost no chance because the spinal damage was too great after West Nile virus. Do not listen to people's ideas about what you can accomplish. It's your life. You are the magician. You are the hero in your story. You must do the thing that you have been sent here to do, and nothing should dissuade you. Do not let anything dissuade you. There you go. That was Emile Ferris recorded that at Comics Arts Brooklyn a while back. Thanks to her for taking the time to do that. Apologize for the fact that that was a pretty short conversation. Unfortunately, she had some time constraints, obviously, and quite a bit of demand these days. Her book, My Favorite Thing is Monsters, came out last year, and it was far and away the most critically acclaimed comic of the year. Volume 2 comes out in uh, August of this year. Thanks to her. Really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks to Jack at Fanographics for helping to set that one up. Thanks to Gabe at Comics Arts Brooklyn for giving us some space to have that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can like us on Facebook, rate and review us over on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the folks who have rated and reviewed us recently. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr. Blur.com. That is, of course, the best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L-related information. I think that's about all I got for this one. We'll be back in actually a couple days. I have a nice stash of shows lined up, so we're going to try to burn through a couple of those in the next few weeks, uh, hopefully at a rate of uh, two per week for a little bit. So enjoy that while it lasts, and uh, stick around, because we'll be back in a very short amount of time with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 